feel like uh, Mr. Rogers. Got to get set up here. I've talk, taken off my sweatshirt. Take off my shoes. Thank you. Perfect. Yeah. This thing's heavy. Let me see if we get more center. There we go. See you all equally. So you can throw something at me equally, right? Anyways, you know, it's always a pl- Isn't that awesome seeing those little ones sing? I tell you, it is a blessing to have that. It is a real blessing to have that. Well, as you know, always want to encourage you to read God's word all the time. So please read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 in light of today's message. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Always encourage you to be in prayer. And you know, here's the thing. You don't know what to pray about. We already talked about You can pray. We have that week-long prayer of missions. You can look back at our wall when you exit the church, and you can pray, for example, Alex. Alex is over in Taiwan. You can get, you can pray for him all the time, all the time. Just keep him in prayer, as with everyone on that board, because prayer makes a difference. Prayer makes a difference. You know why? Because God will change you, because you'll start trusting him more, because that's the problem with us. We just don't trust him. We just think we can do it all on our own. And then lastly, always encourage you to be ready to to tell someone the gospel. Think about who you can give the gospel to. And guess what? This is the season to do it. Everything you point to refers to Jesus. If you're going over for a work Christmas party, guess what? You can talk about Jesus because that's the reason why they're having a Christmas party. They don't even realize it. People sing songs not even realizing the Savior of the world is right there on their lips. And you can point it out. And God will bless it. Trust me, it's what he does. So let's go now to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for not being silent. Thank you so much for giving us direction. Because God, we live in a world where it just, it seems like everyone's proclaiming their own personal truths and it just means nothing. But you have given us the truth. You have given us the way. God, thank you for giving us this hope that when the world doesn't make sense, we just have to look towards your word to make it make sense, to make it have meaning and and to, to know that there is a purpose behind it all and that you will be magnified and glorified. And we can take rest in that. This world is a restless place. It just seems to pile burden upon burden, worry upon worry, woe after woe. God, there's a lot of hurting people in the world. There's a lot of pain, a lot of brokenness, but you are the one that makes it all right. You are the one who reigns on top of the mountain and in in the valley. You are the one who will always make things right. And we can always know that things are going right on track, right on track especially in this Christmas season. Lord, you look down upon this world that was just so full of darkness, and you said, I'm going to give them light. I'm going to give them direction. I'm going to give them hope. I'm going to give them Jesus. Oh, God, thank you. Bless us now as we come before your word. Convict us, Lord, of our sins, so we can live out the faith more consistently and remember that we are completely and fully His, all because of Christ. Amen. Okay. So today we're going to begin to look at the, the begin to look at the final section of 1 Thessalonians. And it's here that Paul now begins to address the church and the way it should function. 
You ever wonder, well, what should the church be looking like? How should we be acting? What should we? Well, right here, we're going to start, we're going to start looking down that path. And he's going to say how it should function in regards to relationships with one another. And our text then that we'll be looking at is chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. And our title today is going to be Loving the Leadership in the Church. Now, but before uh, we begin, I need to make something clear here. This section of Scripture, of chapter 5, verses 12 through 22, even though we're only covering 13 and, or 12 and 13 today, this whole section of Scripture is not something that you can do in your own power. And I know when you read it, it's pretty straightforward, and for the most part, pretty easy to comprehend. For example, Paul's not being very abstract here, but he's being pretty direct and concrete when it comes to the way he's explaining things. Upfront statements that you don't necessarily need to be a trained theological mind to comprehend. For really anyone here can read it and say, I get it, and I can do that. And it's that last part, though, of the statement that gets us in trouble. When we read it, when we read direct statements in Scripture and say, I can do that. That's where the downfall comes. Because it's in those moments when we think we can do something in our own power that we forget the gospel. We forget what Jesus did for us. And we fall into sin, whether that's by self-righteousness or just absolute defeat when we fail. We give up. For the whole point, we need to remember, of Christ coming to this earth as a baby born in a manger, right, what we all decorate for, living the sinless, perfect life, going to the cross to be the sacrifice for our sins, and then coming back to life to, to give us salvation. The whole point of that was that we could not and cannot even do these simple statements or seemingly simple statements, in our own power before God. There's never a time when we can look at a scripture and say, I can do that. No, you can't do it. Because God demands perfection in it. Not progression, but perfection. He demands perfection in everything from you, even the small things, the mundane things, and the simple things. God demands absolute perfection before him, and that demand and expectation never goes away, even after you become a Christian. The only difference as a Christian, as compared to a non-Christian, is that Christ has fully fulfilled those demands and expectations for you by faith. And through faith, then you are called to rely upon him alone to enable you to follow them by his strength and not yours. We so easily forget that because we think we've got a handle on things. And I'm sorry to say you don't. Christ has a handle on those things. Not you. You're the problem. We're the sinners in need of a Savior constantly. You are a saved sinner by faith in Christ. And so we are to constantly go to him by faith for Christ to empower us then to follow after his ways according to his timing and his standards. And if you think I'm being weird, Jesus said this in John chapter 15, 
verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. This is believers. Whoever abides in me, believing in me, faith, and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do some things. Nothing. That's the part we forget. For in him, the power of sin has been broken over. Meaning, first and most importantly, we are no longer condemned by our sin. But also that through faith in Christ, then, as a consequence, he is able to work his power in us to enable us to follow after his ways, even with our inconsistencies and failures and sins. He does all the heavy lifting. We just do the resting in him by faith. But that's the key, is we have to go to him by faith and not try to do it in our own power. So, then as we look at our text today, let us not see it as things that you can do, but see it as revelations of what we should be doing and let it motivate us to cry out to our Savior to produce such works in us, to produce such fruits in us, so that we can live out our faith more consistently before him, all in gratitude for what he has done for us. Amen? All right, let's begin. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, Paul here is directly addressing the congregation and how they're called to relate to their church leaders. And in this current context, he's primarily thinking of pastors in the church. For it can be clearly seen here that he is talking about those with spiritual authority over the congregation. But this also has implication for other leaders in the church as well. But for the moment, we can see that there was some pushback or disagreements or this anti-authority mindset going on in the church. A mindset of, who does this guy think he is? A mindset of, why should I listen to you? You're just a sinner like me. So Paul here begins to address this amongst the church. It was something was going on over there. And what I find so unexpected here is how Paul deals with this issue of anti-authority. I mean, you would expect him to address the issues, right, and not ignore it. We always, should, we always need to address sin. Don't ignore sin. But how he addresses really such a big issue in the church is fascinating. Because when you have an authority issue, you all of a sudden have chaos. But here's the thing. He doesn't come down hard against them with the law. But rather, he comes to them with gracious encouragement to flee from this sin. Notice Paul does not command them to change their attitude towards their leaders. But rather, he makes an appeal. He he humbly pleads with them. He asks them to change their ways. He asks them to respect their leaders in their church. And as a leader himself, the, lead, the, the leader who was over all pastors, over all leaders, over all congregants and all churches at large, because he's the guy that's 
planting them. He was an apostle, so he has the highest state of authority in the church. And he could have demanded it. Yet he simply just asks for it. And he doesn't demand it. And notice he asks them as brothers or as family. For Paul here is coming to them, gently reminding them, as with us, that we're all in this together for Christ. Paul here is saying very gently that these leaders that are there are not their enemy at all. These leaders who are over them are not against them at all, even though they're giving direction and correction to them that kind of might prick some things. Or put differently, make it more personal. Your pastor is not against you and his leadership over you. The church leaders within the church here are not against you as they lead and guide you. For we all are to see the, the church, the people in the church, the leadership in the church as one big family, all on the same page. For by referring to them as brothers, he's reminding them that there is a close bond now that was created in Christ upon the cross to create his church, the spiritual family that is here to work as a united people to face the opposition that comes from the world, a family unit to work together to overcome the hostility from the people around us, to rally around each other as we face hardship that's thrown at us, to pick each other up when we're down, to reach out and encourage one another when we're going off track, and to help this process to help us move in that direction. Christ gave leaders to the church to help direct and lead the church family, to live out such things, to see such things. As it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying the leaders you have in your life of the church are there to help you and are not against you, especially your pastor who has been ordained for this lifelong calling before the Lord. So pay attention to what they say. Now before I move on though, say like, well, there you go. Listen to this. Before we move on, I want to point out another thing here. So yes, Paul is directly speaking to the congregation and their relationship in regards to the leadership, right? But he's also speaking indirectly to the leadership over the Thessalonians. For example, me as a pastor in regards to this text, Paul is making this request, is making this, I'm sorry, Paul is making this a request by him doing this, by making it a request as compared to a command. It means that I then, as an ordained minister of the Lord, with God given spiritual authority over people, I cannot personally command this respect. 
I can't lord over you. I can't lord my position with you. But I can only go as far as asking you to respect me and respect any other leaders in your church. For I'm to be patient, loving, and kind, and tender with you all, as Paul is to this church. But more importantly, this is how Christ relates to this church. For Jesus said in Matthew 20, from 25 to 28, that Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, real quick, when Paul uses that word then, respect, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Your ears are probably bleeding. I'm sorry. What's wrong with me? Okay, anyway. What he means in this context with this word respect is for the, I probably just lost all the respect, but anyways, (laughs) what it means in this context is for the church to recognize leaders as legitimate leaders of the church. So Paul is not just saying simply to know, for example, that their pastor, that their pastor is important in the church, just to know it, but to honor or respect him by adhering to what he says and following his lead in the Christian life. And so Paul then moves on to describe the work of those who are not getting their due respect, which again, in this context, is focusing primarily on the pastors of the Thessalonians, as we'll see. Paul states in verse 12 here, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, what Paul is saying here is not three different types of leaders, but three different descriptions of the leader. In, different, in three different ways. So the first thing is this laboring among them. Now you might ask, is Paul referring to physical labor? Not really. I mean, sure, but not really. What he's saying is that by providing, those who provide the spiritual leadership is something that creates exhaustion and is laboring. Being a spiritual leader a pastor, for example, is, very, is a very costly effort that weighs upon you. I mean, I just from my own personal experience, but from the many pastors that I know, a lot of them take blood pressure pills. A lot of them have to deal with anxiety. A lot of them are staying up. A lot of them have to deal with stress. A lot of them are just beaten down. Because ministering to people can easily and does drain your strength. It does. It can create deep emotional anxieties within you as you minister to the church. Between, okay, just being very practical, between the counseling, hard counseling, being in deep prayer over those who are suffering and dealing with the heartache and and discipling 
those who have the day-to-day stresses of life? A pastor, for example, carries all those things wherever he goes. Because that's his life calling. He cares for the people and constantly uplifts them and their burdens in deep, long prayer before the Lord. Prayer can be laborious. If you give yourself over to prayer, it's laborious. Because you're praying heartfelt. And if you're saying, well, that sounds kind of boring. For example, Paul himself felt and dealt with the same things, obviously on a greater scale, okay? Because he, he, he was the apostle, a lot bigger than a pastor would, or any leadership would. But you can see him talking about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. And apart from other things, he just gave a huge list of like stuff he has to deal with. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul was a sinner too. I'm just being honest. I praise God we're saved by grace and not by works. Amen? So as a pastor, essentially you get, or spiritual leader too, you get a a sense of what Paul went through, but you get it through the local congregation. But also, this labor does not just stop in the hours of praying and hours of counseling and discipling. But the labor continues in prepping for the sermon and preaching. This too requires many, many hours of deep emotional and mental prayer. And many hours of deep study and a close watch on the spiritual maturity of the people. You might ask, is sermon prep really that exhausting? Is telling this labor? Yes. Yes, it is when you have to do it week by week, by week, because Sunday stops for no man, no matter what happens during the week. So yes, and here's the thing, that's just not from personal experience. Paul states this very thing in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. It says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor, who are exhausting, themselves in preaching and teaching. See, the hardest part of coming to God's word, this is the hardest part, keeping myself out of it, keeping my views out of it, keeping the world's views and world's ways out of it, and just focusing on Christ, focusing on how Christ can help you and and to help you know him and to trust in him more by faith alone. That's the repeated message you have to say every week that the world considers foolish and dumb and stupid. Christ did everything here. You will do it. See, because as a pastor, my goal is not to entertain you. This church is not here to entertain you. This church is not here to make you feel good. Pastor and this church, we are here to point you to Jesus each and every time. So that when you leave out those doors, you leave thinking and proclaiming what an amazing Savior our God is. 
do this. Prepare this way. It's draining physically, mentally, and emotionally. It is labor. Laboring in the word. Next, then, Paul describes and gives this. Are over you in the Lord. Here, Paul reminds them that the pastoral authority, for example, over the congregation comes from Christ and is therefore exercised in and for Christ and unto his name. And to describe what that looks like, you're like, okay, great. What does that mean? The role of, for example, pastoral leadership, the pastor's authority is only given in the Lord so that he can give direction upon a congregant in his or her life or at the church or to the church at large to live in such a way as to reveal that Christ is Lord of their life. That's the goal. That's the authority that I have. And so by saying in the Lord, the pastoral authority only goes as far as Scripture goes. That's where it ends. Meaning, the pastor's authority is limited to help people carry out God's will as revealed in Scripture, not in a personal preference of the leader or a personal opinion of the leader. Where's the address in the Scripture? Is what I'm supposed to give. Which again is laborious because to do so, you have to wait patiently on the Lord to change his people from the inside out, to change their heart. Because God is in control over his people and not the pastor and not the leadership. Paul then also describes then in the text, who admonish you? Meaning, the pastor also instructs the people to correct them in their thinking and ways, but not in a harsh or a way that provokes anger, but in a tender way to mature and expand people's insight into Jesus and his gospel of grace. The pastor is there to admonish people to rely upon Christ's finished works to find their rest, their security, their comfort, their release, their freedom, and not in the worldly things or in worldly ideas. That's what this church is called to do. And again, this is not meant to be done in a harsh way, but to be done, this admonishment, in gentleness, with patience, which again is also laborious because it takes time. And the best example of this is this very text we're looking at, where it's an admonishment from Paul for the people to respect their leaders, and yet it is being done in the most graceful, tenderness way to reveal the truth of how things should be. Paul then here adds one more thing to this request for how the congregation should treat their leaders. And by the way, this is a hard text for me to preach because I'm talking about myself in some regard. It's, it's hard. But anyway, he states in verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And here it's important to know what Paul is not saying, 
before we can see what he is saying. What Paul is not saying in regards to esteem them very highly in love. Paul is not saying, for example, to treat the pastor like a prince. I'm sure you've seen that in other churches. He is not saying to treat the pastor like some celebrity or some type of person with social prestige. Not at all. The pastor or any leader is not a king, not a lord, and not your boss. pastor is not this holy man to whom everyone should ooh and ah over because he walked by or looked at them. You've seen that too, I'm sure, in churches. The pastor, like anyone else, is a sinner who is saved by grace and is in need of God's grace every day and every moment like any other Christian. There is only one king, one Lord, one true holy man, and his name is Jesus. Okay, so now that's clear. Let's get to what Paul is then saying. What Paul is saying is that the congregation should think highly of their pastor, his worship, to the fullest capacity allowed biblically. And what is that? Or how should that be done? Well, to think of a pastor highly means you willfully submit to what they say in regards to the Christian life and practice from the word and according to the word of God. Number one. Number two, by saying in love, right, by adding that word in love, means to always look out for their pastor's betterment rather than complaining about it. Because sure, you can esteem a pastor for the most part by listening to what they say and yet still complain about them behind their back. But to highly esteem in love means to constantly show full support and encouragement for the pastor or leader. And to do it in love means to look for ways to help them lead better by praying for them, by halting gossip about them. To think highly in love is to build them up through kind words or asking and seeing if their own financial needs or, uh, or material needs are being met so they don't have to stress about their home life and can focus on just serving others because they are free to care for others' needs rather than getting distracted or exhausted by their own. To esteem them in love looks means love always looks out for the betterment of others above self. How can we help you in ministry? So it's just not on you. How can we serve the Lord through helping you? Now, Paul here then gives the whole, like, why should I do this? Right? Why should you do this? Right? We all, like, say the, like, you know, what you should be doing, but why? Why? That's the always the question. Why? Right? My daughter always says, why? My son, why? Why? Can you do it? Why? Just, okay. Just do it. And they always ask Why? But now we are asking, why? And you're looking at me, why? Okay, I get it. And Paul here then gives the reason why the congregation should respect and highly esteem and love their spiritual leaders. So listen, okay? Listen. It's not because of their merits with people. Not because of my merit with you. 
not because of what I do for you or what I've done for you or any leadership. Because at some point, guess what? The leadership, and for example, me as your pastor, are going to let you down. And I will not be able to fulfill your expectations. I will fail and probably even sin against you. So this love that the congregation is called to have is not because you happen to like the pastor or something he has done nice for you. No. This respect and esteem and love should come about because of what Paul says here now. This is the why in verse 13. Because of their work. Well, let me put it to you differently in a more personal manner. God uses imperfect pastors like myself who will fail you. And guess what? You will not want to respect or think highly of them anymore. But Paul says to love the leader, to love the pastor, not because of who he is, but because of what God has called him to do, which is to watch over your soul so that you can know Jesus and his love. Now, for example, does this mean then you can't correct me if I mess up? No, of course you can. I expect you to if you love me. But it does mean, though, that you are to come to me in love and not in harshness or any leadership. Just as we and I are to come to you in all love and not harshness, just like this church. Looking to build each other up, not to tear down. Which is why Paul says at the end of verse 13, be at peace amongst yourselves. It's good to sort of Christmas time, right? Especially when you bring all the family together. Be at peace amongst yourselves. I need that. No. Um, Paul here is speaking with this last verse then directly to both leaders and the congregation with this passage, with this verse 13. All of them are to be at peace amongst each other. For again, they are all on the same team. They all have the same goal. They are all called to magnify and glorify Christ in all things with all people all the time. Because here's the thing. Oh, my time's up? No. Um, um, for Paul here, okay, because here's the thing. Here's the thing. When there is strife, between the pastor and the congregation. When there is strife between the leaders and the congregation, on any level, guess what? Ministry becomes very discouraging for all because all become distracted from what really matters, the gospel, and the church then just becomes inward-focused, self-serving, all about me. Rather than outward focused to reach people for Jesus. What happens? So now that we went over this passage, and we start to think about it, it might actually seem like an impossible task. Because think about it. What person ever wants to be told what to do? What person ever wants to submit to someone, especially in today's culture? 
And what leader wants to deal with being disrespected and not listened to? How can a bunch of sinners ever get along? And the answer is clear. By looking to Jesus and what he's done for us. For we all are to remember we are his church. Not my church, not your church, his. We are all under his rule, his authority. And we are all called to trust in him that he knows best. He knows the ways that we're called to live. He knows exactly what's best for you and me. And when we look to Jesus and his message of gospel of grace, you are to remember then that in Christ, you are already the perfect congregant and the perfect congregation who respects and highly esteems their pastor and leaders in perfection. Why? Because Jesus did it for you. You're to remember that. When God looks down, that's what he sees. Jesus' life, not yours. And then in Christ, too, the, the pastor and the leaders are already the perfect leaders towards you. For in Christ, he has done everything for all of us to be free from the power of sin in our life and to fulfill the requirements of God. And this means then that when we look at this passage, when we look at passages then such as this, and we become a little bit daunted, and you should, the law should press in a little bit. Because we see the extent of what's being stated here. I mean, this is what Paul, what Paul means. This is all the time disrespect and love is supposed to happen. But when we see passages like this, we are called then to run to Jesus to help us live out the very things we're talking about. We are to lean into him by faith and let his victories, let his blessings shine through us as we live together as his united church upon this world. For as we do then, we will flourish at bringing the gospel to all people in the world. And we will find all the strength and resources and peace we need to work united together in Christ. There's a world that's dying and they're going to hell. And the gospel is needed ever so much so. And here's the thing, the gospel's powerful enough, powerful enough to break through. For in Christ, it is finished for us. We just need to look to him in all things so we can reach a lost and dying world. Amen? I'm going to go ahead and pray. The deacons are going to come up. You can pray with them. And I invite you here. Here's the thing. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that today you know him. You come on up. You can pray with one of the deacons saying, I have accepted Christ. Come and talk to me. I have accepted Christ. And if you're struggling thinking that maybe I messed up too much. Maybe Christ doesn't love me anymore. False. He does love you absolutely and unconditionally. That's what Christmas is all about. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for everything that you have done. God, you are so holy, just, and righteous. Thank you for giving us direction, for giving us hope, for giving us this wonder of your grace to know that no matter how far we've fallen or how many times we messed up or how many times we've turned our back against you and we're faithless to you, you have never been unfaithful to us, but you have been faithful to us, constantly seeking us, running after us, constantly providing that safety net of grace underneath us. Lord, help us to remember that, that there is hope always for us and that every day is a good day because your son is alive. 
and we are not condemned for our sins ever. And Lord, if someone doesn't know you here today, I pray today be the day they turn to you and say, I need you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that that prayer itself, I need you, Jesus, is our prayer as believers every day. I need you, Jesus. And then we can have the full assurance that you do too. In Jesus' name.